What's up, Bandive crew? James here. And before we jump into this episode, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever wished there was a way to connect with me as well as other listeners in real time? I have the solution. I finally got around to making a Bandive Discord server, which is people have been asking me for years and I just wasn't listening. I wish I had done this sooner because I couldn't be happier with the results. It's been fantastic. And we would love to see you join us. We have discussions about the music business, gear, the podcast, and a general channel as well. You can join the discussion now by visiting bandhive.rocks slash discord. Again, that is bandhive.rocks slash discord. Welcome to episode 53 of the Bandhive podcast. You're listening to the Bandhive podcast, the number one online resource for DIY bands to learn about the music business and touring. If you want to turn your band into a lean, mean touring machine, you're in the right place. Now, let's get this show on the road. It is time for another episode of the Bandhive podcast. My name is James Cross, and I'm here with Matt Hose of Alive in Barcelona. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing pretty awesome, James. How about yourself? That's wonderful to hear. Things are good here as well. I'm having a great day. I was telling you before the show, I made some great food last night, and you were telling me about the Mexican food you and your family had. All sounds amazing. But I got to say, even better news, we have Matt Bacon of Dropout Media joining us today. How are you doing, Matt? Matt Bacon, that is. Hey, I'm uh, living the the dream, whatever that means for people who put out death metal records for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear things are going well for you. And uh, congratulations on your recent move to London. It's like it sounds like a major step, but it seems like you're killing it. I mean, yeah, it's been it's been really cool coming here. A lot of my social life has been in Europe for a long time, just out of like going to festivals and like the people I go on vacation with are all European, like because I, I went to high school here. So like most of my old friends are from here. So there's been a lot of that, a lot of like catching up with old friends I haven't seen in a year because of the ongoing circumstance. And that's actually been incredibly good. Like the entire experience thus far has been like, why didn't I do this a year ago instead of spending all of 2019 jet lagged? Yeah, oh, no joke. Yeah, that is no fun. <laughs> Sounds like you had uh, you had enough of the ball rolling to be able to actually make some life changes amidst everything. So that's good. A little proactive uh, lifestyle there. <laughs> A lot better than most of the people here in the States. I do appreciate this quote from my therapist who called it active waiting. You know, sort of this idea of like, I can't really make any actions that will make this thing move faster. You know, so I might as well make some sort of active step that marginally improves my lifestyle. Well, that sounds like you're a true musician. Hurry up and wait. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, the life of the industry. Oh, my God. Yep. It's like the worst part on tour. I'd, I would I'd always go so insane when I was on the road. I'd just be like, OK, I'm ready to to do something. And instead, you just get really <laughs> fucking drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the tour life. It's not for everyone, but this is a podcast for musicians, so hopefully it is for everyone listening. But so, for anyone who's wondering why we invited Matt Bacon onto the show, Matt, you run Bacons.Bits on Instagram, which is a daily series of videos, just like about a minute long, that you've been doing for a couple of years now, which is, I think it's awesome that you've had not just the motivation, but the habit to do that every single day for, I don't know, that's got to be... Two years, eight months, 19 days. Yeah, there you go. You already have it in your head. Do you know off the top of your head how many days that is total? 981, I think. 981. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Wait, no, was there was there was there a leap year in there? Yes, this year. Yeah, so it's 982. 
982. That is the kind of dedication and drive that musicians need to have. Absolutely. Like that's <laughs> no doubt about it. That is how you build a career pretty much in any creative field, but especially music, just by putting out content regularly. We were talking about having you on the show because you were posting some really interesting videos about record labels. So this episode is going to be about the types of record deals that a DIY artist could reasonably expect to be offered throughout their career. But before we get into that, you also run Dropout Media. That's your company. Can you give us a little bit of a background about what Dropout Media is, how you got into the music industry, all that kind of stuff? Sure. So Dropout Media is my consulting company and agency, where essentially what I do is I run ads for, you know, pretty big labels, you know, and I've worked on campaigns with like Zach Wild and Necrot and, um, you know, Duel for any European fans who probably care about that band. I've done a lot of stuff like that with, with it as sort of a marketing agency. But then on the flip side, there is a consulting company where I help with, you know, everything from, you know, label end, it can be strategy or A&R, you know, like I got to sign Coven and Zasther to Prophecy Productions. I signed Capra and Warcurse to Blacklight Media, which is a Metal Blade subsidiary, you know, among many others. So there's sort of that piece, the A&R label strategy piece, and then also doing consulting one-on-one for bands and kind of teaching bands how to grow their brands, how to expand their reach and kind of achieve that next level. And that's also kind of been on a huge variety of levels from bands just starting out to bands signed to some pretty nifty labels. In terms of how I got into it was really a question of when I was 14 years old, I was supposed to go on a school trip, but I didn't because I was sick. And also I hated everyone um, because, you know, (laughs) I kind of moved to France thinking that other high schoolers would know about Dark Throne. (laughs) Um, Not perhaps my wisest assumption, you know, but anyway, so I, I didn't go on the school trip. And while the other kids were like on the beach learning to surf or something, I was like, oh, I'm going to start a metal blog with my friend, Dan. And uh, Dan just kind of wanted to set it up and didn't really do that much writing. He's still one of my really good friends today, which is cool. Um, But I kind of took this blog and it kind of ran with it. It's called Two Guys Metal Reviews. I still update it every day. And, you know, that turned into like just sort of an eagerness to learn things you know and and i think when you see a lot of bands when you're like seeing a different you know because like i was really focused on reviewing underground and unsigned bands literally what happened was because i I was 14 i didn't know how pr worked so i literally started a uh thread on ultimate guitar and said i'll review your band and i got like hundreds of replies and like some of those people i don't know like i met insanity alert through that who are now signed to season of mist i saw them open for slayer two summers ago which was like really insane because it was like, oh, like these are guys I remember from the demo and we were just a bunch of fucking idiots. So that turned into, you know, becoming a more legitimate press person and, you know, just saying yes to writing for everyone, uh, you know, simultaneously while not getting very good grades in English class. (laughs) Eventually, I like kind of inherited a label from this dude and put out some stuff like when I was 17, 18, maybe even younger. And then when I left high school, I needed like a summer job. So I started working PR for my buddy. Then after like 20 minutes of college, I dropped out because I was like, okay, I could do this or I could be on tour and talk to girls. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so like that was not a hard decision for a 19 year old. (laughs) And uh, 
it kind of went from there. Like I ended up losing the PR job because a whole bunch of stuff, you know, but we're, I'm still friends with that guy. I'm still working on a campaign with him right now, actually, you know, but then when I lost that PR job, I'm 19 living in Brooklyn and I like, don't know how I'm going to make any money, but a bunch of the clients from that PR company hit me up and were like, Oh, you gave us some really good advice. Could we like give you some money to keep giving us advice? And I was like, uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then kind of a consulting company sort of came out of that. That's awesome. And so that also explains where the name of your company came from since you uh, yes. dropped out of college. That's awesome. So that also begs the question, since you started this so young, when you were 14, you started the blog and then started working with the bands, got the label at 17. How long have you been doing all of this? Because it seems like you have so much experience. It's got to be at least a decade. Yeah, it's, 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 this is year 10. Congratulations, Congratulations. on uh, 10 years in the industry. I don't know. It's just... I, I think when you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and I'm not really going to think about any other things. Like literally in the process of this, I've like forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bike and how to drive. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it was like, I don't need to know those things. Those things don't help me do death metal. You know, those things don't help me do like shit I want to do. So like, although I do, th- I do have to relearn how to drive at some point. It's, it's getting pretty bad. <laughs> but, just remember um, you drive on the wrong side now yeah exactly right it's like a whole <laughs> new ball game i need to i feel like i need to relearn how to drive in america first before uh <laughs> before switching over yeah oh <laughs> yeah. Uh, well that's a great story i think uh it'll lead to some really insightful thoughts that you can share for artists who listen to the Bandhive podcast before jumping into it, I just want to give the listeners a reminder on episodes 35 and 36, we had a two-part series about how to get signed, which wasn't actually how to get signed. That title was a little clickbaity on our part. Basically, it talked about the expectations that artists have for getting signed and the reality and the truth behind that. So if you haven't checked out those episodes, you can find them at bandhive.rocks slash 35 and bandhive.rocks slash 36. Or you can, of course, find them in your favorite podcast app wherever you're listening to this episode right now. But to get into the types of deals, uh, like I said earlier, Matt, uh, Matt Bacon, <laughs> the types of deals, you've been doing a video series about that as part of Bacon's Bits. Can you delve a little deeper into the types of deals that a DIY artist could reasonably expect to be offered at some point during their career if they make the right moves? Sure. And, you know, and obviously, just to be clear, there's a whole gamut of other offers out there and people are always trying to discover new ways to do things. Although I would say when people say that, be cautious because it very rarely happens in a way that's a good idea. Okay, I've seen a lot of like unique ways to do a deal that were either just rehashing an old way to do a deal or just bad. And I've definitely yelled at a few labels for like this model is not. No, come on, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) but no okay so basically so first and foremost i think the deal most people need to know about that they don't actually know about is a product deal i think this is the type of deal that is the easiest to understand and it is it it causes the least drama why a straight product deal is all you're saying is a label saying look we're going to print 500 lps and we're going to give you 25 percent of them and usually in a product deal you can expect 15 to 25 percent of the product maybe a little more if you have some clout right so we're going to do 500 LPs. We're giving you 25%. So that's um, 125, right? And then beyond that, they're like, we'll help promote you. Like we'll get PR or something. But otherwise, you know, 
Digital is you. Everything else is you. But our only restriction is you can't repress within two years or three years, kind of depending on how active the label is and, you know, how many units they pressed, basically. Right. Because like a label like Ripple Music, where like they have a good machine going and a good back end, doing a repress of something is relatively easy. So we have it on a five year contract in most cases. Right. Whereas like, you know, if it's a small DIY label that maybe won't have the money in you know, a year to do to spend another four thousand dollars on on LPs, you know, they might just be like, look, just don't fuck us over, you know, so don't reprint. And then we'll just call it even there. We're helping you out. You're helping us out. Like I said, those deals are generally the ones that cause the least drama. They're the easiest, you know, even if they're not necessarily the most profitable. And there's a couple variations within that. And those usually tie in basically to digital royalties, which a lot more and more labels want, obviously. And usually there you're splitting digital royalties. You're either getting anywhere from 20 to 50% on those. And I think that's really valuable to, to split because like a well-curated label band camp can really uh, move the needle for you. You know what I mean? So I think that, you know, you're increasingly seeing the digital portion included. And I'm encouraging people to include the digital portion in their product deals, right? This still doesn't really include publishing. The second type of deal, which is your classic deal that, you know, People like me who smoke cigars and sit in leather chairs <laughs> like to offer um, is I don't necessarily like to offer this type of deal. I was being fatuous just for the record. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of your more typical record deal where what we're saying is, OK, here's five thousand dollars. You're going to get an 18 percent advance and you're going to get 50 percent on digital. And um, maybe we'll take two shirt designs and we'll pay you 20 percent on that. Now, what's interesting here is so the $5,000 really represents the advance, really represents royalties up front. So what this means, this is what people need to understand, okay? Let's say I'm going to make it way simpler than the one I just outlined, just so that we can all follow the math together. You're a band. You're doing only CDs because I just want to make it easy, okay? You have a 10% royalty. You're getting a $1,000 advance, and you're selling CDs at $10 a pop, okay? So again, 1,000 CDs. $10 each, 10% royalty, okay? $1,000 advance. So most people would think, oh, well, if I'm selling CDs at $10 a pop, well, that would mean that uh, after I sell 100 CDs, I've paid off the advance, right? Wrong. Because you're not paying back at the rate that you're selling them at. You're paying them back at the royalty rate, which if you remember is 10%. So you're only paying off $1 per CD sold. So you need to sell a thousand CDs to pay off your thousand dollar advance. Now, some people view that as kind of a scam. I don't really because I think it's the royalties in advance. But I think also that people don't necessarily understand that. And I think that labels also have a lot of deductions in there and a lot of added costs they can put in before they pay you back, depending on the contract. And I think that's where problems come up. And usually that's because some people who run labels are insane, but more commonly, the band didn't hire a lawyer and didn't understand the contract. That creative accounting from labels is something I hear about over and over again. Yeah, it's a tricky one. But And, th- and this kind of gets into the third type of deal, which is increasingly common, which is like the indie joint venture deal, which is essentially this idea that we're going to give you your $5,000 advance, okay? 
We're going to spend 10 grand in marketing and paying staff on this release. And then everything after that 15 grand we put into you, we're going to split 50-50. But we keep everything on the payment. So it's all essentially recoupment, recoupment, recoupment on that first $15,000. And then on the $15,001, you're splitting 50-50. And that's become increasingly common because I think that that guards against some of the creative accounting. Although I think I never understood that because I feel like that option allows for more creative accounting. But regardless, like that's that's an option that you're seeing happen more and more. Uh, and it, it seems to be making people really happy. I think it makes a lot of sense in sort of this newer status of labels as sort of content distribution partners more than like the people who put out the music. You know, so I, I think that sort of makes sense because in some ways you're really just an influencer partnering with a bank or I just I've said I'll set up like deals with influencer accounts and you know corporations all the time that kind of operate like that and I think that's I think a lot of people view that as sort of a equitable way to be so speaking of recoupment I know for major labels there's the old rule of 10 where basically one in 10 albums will recoup when you're working with DIY artists these days who are signing to independent labels, does that same ratio somewhat apply? Or do you see a higher percentage of artists who are able to recoup the advances that they've been given? First and foremost, most artists aren't getting an advance these days. Yep. Fair enough. Or if they're getting an advance, it's pretty small. That being said, I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but that seems basically accurate. It's tricky, though, because... There's just so many layers. There's just so many directions you could take that from. And so, like, I'm sure that, you know, might it's more likely in some genres than in others. Uh, and it, you know, and it depends on the deal structure and status of the types of bands who are signing to that label and the status of the fans of that label. You know, a label like 20 Bucks Spin sort of has this cult of fans who buy a ton of product and who are obsessed with the label in a way that... Um, you know, many others are not, and I'm sure that helps some of that stuff along. I think you need, you know, I, I I can't fully answer that because I think it's too tricky, but I can say most people don't recoup when they do get an advance. Yeah, which to me personally, it doesn't seem like the end of the world to not recoup. Yeah, because you got all the money already. Right, exactly. As long as there's no like tricky wording in the contract that says it has to be paid back out of pocket, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, like, that's what I never understood. It's like, the only time I see it being a concern is sometimes people will cross-collateral the advances record to record, and which essentially means, like, let's say I had $3,000 on record one, $5,000 on record two, but on record one, I only recouped uh, $2,000. They would be able to take $1,000 of my advance from record two and apply it to record one, and then I'd have a smaller advance. I've seen that be an issue, but I think that is not something that you should be like, like just make sure you don't have a cross collateralization clause. Yeah. That is a really uh, important thing to be said. I mean, you just kind of briefly touched on it when you said, you know, this was obviously a case where a band didn't have a lawyer and didn't, you know, the lawyer didn't go over the contract when you're in business, you need lawyers. And so like, if you guys don't have a lawyer yet, you know, and, and some of you, you know, you're all going to, you know, our listeners are going to be at a different part in their career, everybody. But as soon as the, you get to the point where labels are reaching out to you and 
coming at you with a deal, you need an entertainment lawyer to look at that. Because the last thing you want to do is sign some sort of 360 deal where, you know, you relinquish rights to literally everything about your band. You put out a record, it doesn't recoup. And then you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to leave this record label, go to somewhere else. And that's not the case at all. And so, you know, these are things that are, you know, it's really important to have an entertainment lawyer coming in and saying, well, you know, this clause, this can definitely screw you. And so, like you were saying earlier, there's been a lot of reimagining of deals. And in that reimagining, it's very easy to include whatever clause you want in a contract. You need to make sure that your bases are covered. Yes and no. I think... Yeah, like especially with bigger deals, like I've definitely seen deals from majors where it was like, hey, we get all of your income, implying it's all going to be music. But like if it isn't and you have to go get like a real job, they get 80 percent of that, too. But I would just say like because I've definitely seen it happen where bands have spent a ton of money on a tiny deal like to, to like to get a lawyer like. If it's a DIY label offering you a product deal in that case you don't really need a lawyer you know like you need to be thoughtful but i wouldn't necessarily be like go spend a thousand dollars on a lawyer so you can get 50 lps you know what i mean i've definitely seen some people get like lawyer happy on very small deals and then come to regret it later on you know and like obviously i think you should hire a lawyer for a lot of things like i have a lawyer who i've been working with for six years like I own a company with him. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to like, but you kind of get what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. You know, it's, it's, uh, you don't need to go buy a $10,000 guitar to learn how to play guitar. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, exactly. You don't need an $1,000 lawyer for something simple. And as a part of that, you know, like, you know, use some judgment with the lawyer you, lawyer you hire. Cause I've definitely also seen bands for a, several thousand dollar advance hire some high power industry lawyer and it's like well you're playing a type of music that has a pretty finite ceiling and you paid this guy a fifth of your advance there are other solutions and it but it's definitely tricky it's definitely hard to find those other solutions but i'm just saying like don't assume getting a big lawyer is always the answer because the other thing is too especially some of those guys don't necessarily um I've seen it happen where it's like lawyer who handles mostly deals for majors gets paid a, a, a dumb amount of money to do something for like an indie label. And it's like he doesn't really know how the label, how the industry works at that level or for like that genre, you know, and then the band ends up paying way too much money. So you have to like be really thoughtful in that, because I think that lawyers are really, really, really goddamn important. Just make sure you know the lawyer that you're getting. Yeah. If you're going into a certain part of the industry, make sure that they're, you know, a contract lawyer or make sure that they deal with DIY artists. Yeah, exactly. Like, like make sure they have some sort of greater understanding. Right. Make sure you're competing at the level that you're competing at, not trying to run before you can walk, so to speak. Exactly. I really like that. It also comes down to location. Different states have different laws. Different countries have different laws. So if you hire a lawyer from like California to do a deal with a DIY label in Vermont and the band is also in Vermont, California's laws don't matter at all for that type of deal. You can hire the biggest lawyer in California and it's not going to help if there's like a dispute in Vermont. I think that's something to be said too. That's definitely a piece that I think people don't understand. And also like I have like this whole ongoing thing about like classism in the music industry. 
And I think that's a big part of it, you know, and that's something I try to like kind of personally help people with as much as I can, even if it's tricky, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's the kind of thing where if an artist wants to make music, they should be able to make music. Like that's how I feel. We advocate for always putting out the best product possible, you know, bringing in somebody who knows what they're doing for the mix, that kind of stuff. But if somebody can't afford that, that's not a reason to not create art, at least in my opinion. If you can't afford a mix engineer or going to a studio, that's fine. Make art. Somebody out there will still enjoy it. Maybe it won't have as wide of a reach, but it's still going to be enjoyable to someone somewhere out there. But as far as the product deals, I'm curious about how repressings work on that. Since you know you said different labels will stipulate different lengths of time that you can't repress on your own. If the label does a repress, does that same percentage that is given to the band apply? So if they, you know, press a thousand copies and give two hundred to the band, and then they do another pressing of a thousand copies later in, you know, six months or a year, does the band still get twenty percent of that pressing? Usually yes. Sometimes there are changes depending on things. You know, ultimately like a significant part of the cost for the first pressing is gonna be getting the vinyl plating made and getting the layout done like that, that, you know, so sometimes people can get a higher percentage on the second pressing because, you know, we don't need to pay the whatever it takes for the vinyl plating thing. And we don't need to pay the layout guy. You know, we have all the files. And so sometimes I've seen bands be like, oh, we'll give us another 5% then. Usually, though, labels want to keep it the same. And usually the label argument is essentially, well, yeah, we invested a bunch of time on the assumption that there'd be a repress and we could make our money there. And usually the contract will say that. But sometimes what'll happen is like you'll have a contract for just a single pressing and then they might offer you a new contract for a new pressing. And I've also seen it done uh, where I'm in the middle of this right now, where we did a product deal on the first pressing and then the second pressing is more normal indie deal that we talked about, the 50-50 joint venture. That's interesting. So since a lot of the expenses have already been put out there, is that just then essentially a larger marketing push for the second pressing? Yeah, or some, sometimes it's just like, okay, this thing sold really quickly and a lot of people want one, so we're just going to do it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, the thing is, like, especially if you have a good warehousing situation, then like, why not just print another thousand if it costs you a few dollars a year and you're moving 25 a year or 50 a year, then like you might as well just have it out. You know what I mean? You might as well have it in stock. You know, like I'm sure consider something like, I don't know what kind of music you guys like. All of it. Okay. You know, I'm sure that no Slayer record is going unpressed. You know, just they're just just repressing every six months. There's just another, you know what I mean? Because it's just there's still demand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things, too, that bands when they're signing need to consider is the longevity of the record. Because I've seen a lot of artists who are like, oh, well, we put out this album 10 years ago and, you know, we can't repress it. The label won't let us, but the label won't put it out themselves either. It sounds like with a product deal, that's not as typical, but when you see situations like that pop up, if you had to associate that most commonly with one type of deal, which, uh, which type would that be? Um, the more standard royalty deal, but also because the joint venture deals haven't really been around long enough for those to really have started having that issue. I think it's important to work into your contract a clause saying, uh, and this is actually uh, a part like, uh, built into German law, from what I understand, 
essentially if the label does not exploit your physical rights for two years and you give them a um, a certified letter and six months notice, you can just start to press on your own. That's awesome. That is really cool. And quite frankly, let's be honest, some fucking DIY label that hasn't posted on Facebook in four years, are they really going <laughs> to fucking find out if you made some CDs? I would not think so. <laughs> like, like I, I, see, I sometimes see people getting really caught up on this stuff, and it's like, well, that guy isn't going to sue you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's also part of, like, the beauty of the product deal to me, too, is, like, obviously don't be a dick. You know, obviously, you know, repressing a better CD at right after the guy presses, you know, like, there's a reason those contract terms are there. But simultaneously, like, if the guy really, really is trying to fuck you over, like... I don't know. Like, I, I rarely see that actually come to be the case. But I think sometimes it's important to realize, like, in terms of some of the smaller guys, like, I don't think they're gonna, you know, but obviously, like, I don't want to be like, oh, just rip off labels. That's obviously not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is just like, if someone's really fucking you over, I don't know, talk to a lawyer about it and look at like what they could realistically do to you. Because like, quite frankly, a lot of these smaller label seals are full of holes and not very well written. I think, Matt Hose, you have a story about that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Our first label, it was littered with terms that were not well-defined. And so uh, legally, I'm not allowed to tell you who it was, but I can definitely tell you that our contract said that we were supposed to get a large lump sum of money put into a marketing budget for us for every X amount of shows that were played. Oh, my God. Right. And the loophole was that there was no definition for what a show was. And so we weren't trying to screw a label over. We wanted the rights to our music back. That was our only contingency. And they said, well, we haven't fully recouped yet, so we don't want to do that. And so we said, okay, we're going to play three shows a day in our friend's basement, and we're not going to invite anybody. And we told that to our, our lawyer, and we said, can we do this? And he said, yeah, absolutely, you can do this. He's like, uh, your buddy owns a venue, and he can literally sign off on the fact that you've played these shows. So you can go play three shows a day for the next couple months, and they'll owe you $90,000. And so for us, we basically just turned to them and said, hey, this, this is really what we want. Like, we don't, we don't want to do this. We want to be above board. We want to, you know, uh, run business well. And we don't want to have this uh, stigma about our band. And so when we ended up talking directly to the label owner and said, okay, well, this technically we can, you know, we can do this. First, the initial thing was that they tried canceling our contract when they were outside of the window to cancel with a lot of contracts. If, you know, you have uh, multiple options, you know, they have to let you know ahead of time if you're going to be working together, essentially. Well, they had decided we weren't working together anymore, but they didn't tell us in time. So our little quote unquote forcing their hand when we told them, about that, they came back with, if you basically pay off the last of the debt on what's owed on the printing, then we will go ahead and give you the rights to the music back. So we were actually able to strong arm our label into getting the rights to our music back, which really does not happen. That was the year, I think that was, uh, I think it was like 2015 or 2014 that that happened. And it was like the same year that Metallica got the rights back for like master of puppets or something ridiculous like that, you know? So just to put into a full scale of how long it might take you to get your rights back, even if you do get your rights back, a lot of contracts, you don't get your rights back anymore. So just due to the fact that we were in this situation where we kind of had like a, 
contractual gray area. And that's just what you're talking about, Matt, where you're saying like some of these smaller contracts, they're not well-defined and there's loopholes in them. And for us, we could have been horrible, horrible people and exploited them. But instead, we chose to do business above board. And in the end, both partners left with basically what we entered with. They didn't make any money and we had our music. And so everybody kind of had a bad taste in their mouth, but at least no parties walked away saying like, I hate these guys, blah, 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 this, you know? And so for us, we kind of felt pretty good about it. Was your plan when you were going to play all those shows, was your plan to make a flyer for each one? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I just like, I had this image in my head of just like, you just making hundreds of different flyers to make it a show. And honestly, we could have one of the guys in our group at the time did a little bit of digital uh, graphic work and things like that. So, I mean, our opportunity was endless and we knew it. I mean, and and it was it was me and my guitarist, Jesse, that we sat down, we went through the contract and it was like, I think that this is the case. So then after we had talked amongst ourselves for quite a while, we then turned to our entertainment lawyer said like, hey, man, can we give you a couple hundred bucks to look over this and see if what we think is right? And we told him and he was like, mm, yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. There's all sorts of plot holes in here. What I was going to say is this is also like why, again, like I said earlier, like a lot of times you see these sort of creative deals that aren't good. Right. <laughs> and and this is why, because like if a band can play three shows a day in their basement and you owe them 90 grand. That's a quick way to put a label out of business. Yeah. Like it seems like it seems to me that you should maybe do some, you know, like. There's a reason you don't see a lot of new deal types. Right. Yeah. And I think there's also a reason there that uh, labels should have their attorneys look over a deal before they offer it to an artist. Yeah. Goes both ways. Matt Bacon, thank you so much for taking the time to just go over these types of deals. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. If people want to learn more about you and Dropout Media, obviously there's bacons.bits on instagram you can search that up and get the daily videos but where else can people find out more uh yeah find me on twitter and uh facebook facebook is dropout media and twitter is bacon's bits underscore i know it's different i know that's wrong it's very frustrating um we don't need to remind me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know find me those places i have weekly columns at ghost cult magazine and doomed and stoned and then a few other places are about to roll out and you know just uh Check out Blacklight Media, the Metal Blade subsidiary I help run or help coordinate or something. I don't have an official title. I just do things. You just help. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but to check that out because that's like a project. We have a lot of exciting stuff coming on. I was literally on a call about it 30 seconds before we got on this call. So, you know, pretty cool stuff. I have a lot of other projects. You'll see if you follow me on socials there. There are many. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. Go watch Bacon Spits. Comment. Tell me how much I suck. Uh, ask questions. <laughs> And he's in the metal industry, so he means it when he when he says tell him that he sucks because you know those metal guys. That we, we when we when you come from a background in metal, you need to be angry to propel your career. Well, there's yeah. even a site for it. Metal sucks. Yep, that's yeah, right. exactly right. It's just you know, you just gotta gotta feel the hate every day, buddy. That's right. <laughs> exactly. We don't get pent up for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so all those links will be in our show notes at bandhive.rocks/fifty-three. That's the numbers five-three. So you can get all Matt's links from there. And you can also just type them into Instagram, Twitter, wherever you want to find Matt Bacon. Matt, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you.
I really, really, really appreciate it. Like, it really means the world when I get to do things like this. Um, so thank you very much. And letting me rant about deal types and things I don't like was very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's something that people need to hear. So I appreciate it. That does it for another episode of the Band Hive podcast. Big shout out to Matt Bacon of Dropout Media for dropping those wisdom bombs on us this episode. So if you are interested in signing to a record label, those are some things to watch out for and consider, you know, what type of deal do you want? Do you need an entertainment lawyer? Which, depending on the deal, maybe you don't, maybe you do. You know your situation best, but if you have any questions about that, First of all, check out episodes 35 and 36 if you haven't yet. You can find them at bandhive.rocks slash 35 and bandhive.rocks slash 36. And you can also head on over to our Facebook group, which is better.band slash group, if you're just looking for a short link to type into your browser, or you can visit Facebook and search for Bandhive. Once you're there, feel free to ask any questions you might have about how to navigate a record deal, getting signed, all that kind of stuff, or anything in general that you have on your mind about running your business, because we have a great community of over 400 artists who are looking to grow and share their knowledge so we can all be better business owners together. Thank you so much for listening. It's awesome. We really appreciate it. We'll be back next week, 6 a.m., Eastern Time on Tuesday with another brand new episode for you. Until then, have an awesome week, stay healthy, and of course, as always, keep rocking. Hey you, yeah you, with the headphones or the speakers, you've made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. While I still have you here, if you're not already in the Bandhive Facebook community, it would be great to see you there. We have over 600 like-minded musicians who are asking questions, sharing their experiences and advice, and much more. So if you want to improve your band's business, look no further than the Bandhive Facebook community. You can find it by searching for Bandhive on Facebook, that's B-A-N-D-H-I-V-E, or going to bandhive.rocks slash group. Again, that's bandhive.rocks slash group, and that will automatically redirect you to our Facebook community. I look forward to seeing you there soon.